You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. I have to make a confession this morning. I was more nervous about serving communion and getting the offering than I was about preaching or baptizing Irene later. I haven't done that much. (laughs) So now I sympathize with those who are called upon to do it. Well, we have been uh, in the book of Second Samuel, Samuel, studying the life of David, and uh, there has been a, uh, an incredible, there's incredible drama in this, in this book. Last week, we studied how uh, after Saul's death, and David inherited this divided kingdom. It wasn't his yet. Uh, Eleven tribes had been sort of taken by Abner, the commander of, of Saul's army, and Ishbosheth, his only surviving son, was made king. Uh, of the 11 tribes, well, Judah had taken David, and David had become king of Judah in Hebron. And uh, so here, here was this divided kingdom in Israel. And uh, as we carry on, we see that uh, today, as we look at Scripture, God unites Israel. And we're going to see how it is that God does that. The lesson for us in all of 2 Samuel for the next few months, the, the really primary lesson for, it, for us is that that just as David united the kingdom under his leadership and just as Israel, all the nations of Israel had to come and submit to him and crown him king and follow his leadership, so also every one of us is called to come to the Lord Jesus Christ to submit our lives to him that the civil war that exists in every human heart would cease because one has been crowned king and lord. The civil strife that exists in every warring, passionate, lust-filled heart on earth would would stop and one, one being who is worthy of all beings to be lord and king is given that right of ownership, and it's Jesus Christ. That is the lesson that this scripture teaches us. And until Israel had, had given David that leadership and that authority as king, he could not th- therefore go and save them from their enemies. Just as until we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, we cannot trust and count on his power to deliver us from all the enemies of our souls. The very first step is lordship issues. Uh, we, we often have a really confused understanding of conversion even, as if somehow that we are meant to deal with all the wild horses and get them in the corral somehow, and then we present to the Lord some, some kind of person that is able to control things better, and now I'm ready to become a Christian. Well, no, that's not the gospel of grace at all. The gospel of grace says that you with all your messed up life and all the confusion and all the warring things, the civil strife that goes on in your heart, you bring that all in your personality, bring that to the Lord and say, Jesus, here it is. It's a mess. But if you'll take me, I want to be yours completely. And see then, David, of course, not only... he, he not only is, is king over all of Israel, as we'll see today. He not only then begins to fight against their enemies, he also begins to enlarge their domain. You see, Israel had never 
fully occupied. In fact, in all of the Old Testament, Israel never fully occupies the promised land that God had given Joshua as an inheritance to his, his tribes. But David expands that incredibly during his 40-year reign. The picture that we receive from that as we study 2 Samuel is that God wants to take your life. God wants to expand your influence. God wants to broaden the borders where he then, through his lordship in your life, increasingly affects other people in your life and influences others for the kingdom of Christ. So as we go through the narrative in 2 Samuel, these are the very important new covenant lessons that we are to take home into our hearts as Christians. And this morning as we open up our Bibles, we're going to be looking at a, a very complex passage of Scripture. The storyline in 2 Samuel chapters 3 to 5 is far too long for us to read or to study very in-depth. And so what I'd like to do this morning is give you a rather summarized portion of it and then draw out some lessons from it. In chapter 3, verse 1, we read that David's house was growing stronger and stronger even as the house of Saul was growing weaker and weaker. That's the picture of a Christian who has Jesus Christ as Lord. The, the, the life of the Spirit grows stronger and stronger, and the life of the flesh is, is killed off. It gets weaker and weaker. That's a commentary of what was going on at this, these years after David had become king in Judah. We also see in verse 8 of this passage in chapter 3 that during this war between the house of Saul and David, Abner, the commander of Saul's army, had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Now, one of the ways that kings strengthened their positions in that day and age was by having many, many offspring. They just had as many kids as they could. And in order to do so, they had to have more wives and concubines. Now, this was never a custom or a practice that God had sanctioned in His Word or in the law of Moses, but it was something that, that even kings of Israel and Judah had begun to operate in because of being influenced by the surrounding nations around them. And we see in like manner that David, even David, uh, as, as wonderful as a man is after God's own heart, he had blind spots. And here we see in verses 2 to 5 a little rendition of some of the sons that are born to David in his effort to grow and strengthen his kingdom. You'll notice in verse 3 of this passage, there is listed this man Absalom, one of the sons of David. And it says his mother is Makkah, daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. What does that mean? Well, it means that David took a foreign wife, the daughter of a king. What was that all about? That was a, a political maneuver where you, as a king, you would broaden your influence not only through your offspring, but the wives that you would cho choose in order to make an alliance with someone, in order to, to uh, consolidate your power. It wasn't God's way, but it was the way of the world. We will see later in the story in 2 Samuel that this choice, this one particularly about Absalom, caused David much grief. Abner was also strengthening his position. And in verse 7, we see that uh, he takes a concubine of Saul's, King Saul's. And Ishbosheth accuses him of taking this woman and sleeping with her. 
And, and that was a direct assault upon the throne because customarily it would belong to, this woman would belong to Ishbosheth, Saul's successor. We don't know if he actually did this. We just know that he was accused of it. He's offended. And in his offense, he, he tells Ishbosheth that he is going to usurp the throne, or he's going to, sorry, uh, hand Ishbosheth over to David, transfer the kingdom to, uh, to David instead of Saul. And Ishbosheth is afraid because you remember that this Ishbosheth is just a puppet king. Abner's the one really in charge. And so he's afraid. Well, indeed, Ishbosheth, fall, or sorry, Abner follows through on his threats. He sends messengers to David. He sends messengers all to the tribes of Israel. Elders from every tribe join him. They go to David, 20 in all. They have a wonderful feast at the cost of David's banquet table, and they agree there on how they're going to consolidate entirely the whole nation of Israel. And uh, after this moment they leave, Joab, the commander of David's army, walks in and finds that he has got, David has just entertained the enemy. He's angry. He's livid. Why? Not just because of this territorial thing, but because, remember, Abner was the one who killed his brother in the battle that we read of last week. And so, unknowns to David, Joab sends messengers after Abner, saying that the king wants more to do with you. Come back. He comes back. And then secretly, Joab takes Abner aside, thrusts a sword into his side, kills him. And David is upset about this. David responds with a curse upon Joab and his family, completely exonerating David of this thing. And all the people recognize that, indeed, David is grieving seriously over Abner's death, just like he had grieved over King Saul's death sometime earlier. Well, now, as this uh, proceeds, uh, Ishbosheth in chapter 4, we see, is very worried. Why is he worried? He has good reason to be worried. The commander of his army, the guy that protected him and held him up, is now dead. And so he's worried. Well, he has reason to be worried because two captains in his army just see the opportunity. And they sneak into his bedroom in the palace one day in the afternoon while he's lying on his bed, and they kill him. They cut off his head, and they take his head to David, thinking that they're going to be rewarded for killing the enemy king and bringing his head to David. And David, just as he had done when the Amalekite uh, brought the sword and said that he had killed Saul, he also is angry at these two because of this treachery, this murder. And uh, David has the two of them killed right on the spot. A lot of drama, a lot of story going on. Now let's pick up the passage in chapter 5 of 2 Samuel and notice what the Word of God says here. Would you stand with me as we listen to the Word of God? Chapter 5 of 2 Samuel. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. And when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all of Israel and Judah 33 years. May God bless his word. You may be seated. And so we see this, this transaction take place. Interesting. David didn't even lift a sword to consolidate the kingdom. 
Well, one of the things that we see in David during this season of his life is that the 10 years that he had had between the, the anointing when Samuel took the oil and anointed him as king in 1 Samuel 16, and now when he actually is crowned king of all of Israel, uh, David never wanted to kill brothers, never wanted to lift his... He was waiting for God. You see, David saw leadership not as something that was to be taken by force. David saw leadership as something that was to be given by God. And David waited for the timing of the Lord. It says so many times he acquired of the Lord. And the first thing I want to say about the passage is that God built his kingdom through his anointed means and according to his promises. It's amazing in this passage just how it was that God chose David, though he was far from perfect, and God brought about his purposes through David. And in, in, in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, we see him anointed. Um, we can see in chapter 3, verse 1, verse 9, verse 18 of 2 Samuel that Abner knew all along that David was God's anointed king. We can see that David knew that he was God's anointed king. We know that Israel, in just scripture we just read, they knew that God was giving David the anointment of king. And yet, so long did it take for this to take place. What was true in David's day is true today. God builds his church and his kingdom by his anointed means, appointed means, and God does it all because he's just made promises to build his church and to build his kingdom. It's the way God works. It's a mystery for us how God takes imperfect people, even wicked and evil people in this plot that we've just read and I told you about in chapters 2, 3, and 4. It's an incredible complex plot that God uses wickedness. God uses evil. God uses evil intent. He's not the author of it, but he takes it and he squeezes it into the fulfillment of his purposes and the keeping of his promises. Secondly, I want to say that God's people acknowledge his Spirit's anointing and believe in his promises. He uh, raises up a people in every generation who will acknowledge the anointing of God and the appointing of God for his means. There are many in every generation that will not do that, but God raises up a, a people in every generation that will acknowledge his ways and his anointing. Fickle Jerusalem, fickle Israel, I should say, in this passage. And it's very interesting to me that in, in one day they are rallying armies of each tribe in order to come against Joab and the armies of Judah. And then another day after Abner is killed and Ishbosheth is killed, we see them in the scripture that I just read coming before King David and saying, Yeah, all along we knew it was going to be you. I mean, you were the one that was anointed way back, and all that time when, we, when you were fighting beside Saul, you were the one that were, was killing more than Saul. It was just incredible how fickle Israel was. And here it is, God bringing about a change in their hearts as they yield allegiance to David. Do you know something? It's a picture of us with Jesus Christ. Israel needed to, be, to come to the personal, volitional, willingly giving their allegiance to David. And Jesus wants each one of us to, to, to willingly surrender our lives to him. He does not want anyone to be argued into the kingdom. He does not want anyone to be dragged into the kingdom 
or forced to submit to his lordship. He wants us willingly, gladly, and personally to see that he alone is worthy. There is no love like the love of God our Father. There is no grace like the grace of Jesus Christ. There is no fellowship and peace like the peace and fellowship that you have when you have the Holy Spirit in your life. God waits for, it, for you to bring the issues of your life. That baggage that you still carry, that enemy of your heart, that warring passion that brings your heart into civil strife, Jesus just waits for you to bring that under his lordship. That's what he's waiting for. We see it in this scripture as we see David. Jesus alone is worthy of our devotion. He alone is able to deliver us from all our enemies and evil. He alone, his alone is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And so he doesn't barge into our lives. He waits patiently. He's the God of grace. And then finally, to complete the 360, we not only see God's perspective on his anointed means and his promises being fulfilled, we not only see the people's perspective in coming to acknowledge God's anointed and appointed means and his fulfillment of promises, we also see in this passage that he anoints leadership that trust in his leadership, in the lordship, in his plans, and they give him the glory at the end of it all. It's, uh, it's in incredible here in this passage how God uh, brings David into this place of being the king of all of Israel. And next week when we look at chapter 5 and 6 and we look at him taking Jerusalem to be that center of his throne, it is a foreshadowing of the new Jerusalem that we will see come down out of heaven we read about it in, in, in Revelation chapter 21. And it's, an, it's a foreshadowing where, where he's Lord, he's king. There's nothing more that rivals his lordship. And so in the scripture that we're looking at today, in chapter 5 and verse 10, it says, David became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. And in verse 12, it says, and David knew... David knew that the Lord had established him as king and exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Wow. How do we respond to such a message as this? Um, it's all about lordship, as I said at the beginning. We see David, a man who's got his blind spots, being influenced by the culture and the times, we could, we could definitely stumble over all the wives and the concubines and all the things that are going on. Yet we see God in his sovereignty use the man he had appointed because in his heart he saw someone who was humbly seeking his face. In the ten years that we see from the anointing of David to the crowning of David as king, he had been humbling David. He had been preparing David. He came out of that experience as a man that was willing to let God do the fighting. He was a man that was willing to not lay a hand against the Lord's anointed or against his brothers, Israel, but rather see God bring down that other kingdom in God's ways. Interestingly enough, how he did it as we just summarize the story. We notice that David never wanted to fight or kill a brother Israelite. 
It was only to bring justice when one of these had killed Ishbosheth or something. Then, then he commands justice to be done in this rogue Israelite that needed to be brought under God's discipline. But he never warred against his own brothers. It's an interesting way that David had matured to the point where he was going to say, I will let God give me this throne. How many things are in your life, Christian, and you are wrestling with them, and you are struggling against them? And the Bible says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual principalities in heavenly places. How much of, of, it, of the things that you're fighting against are you, are you doing it in your own strength? Trying to change that loved one to become a Christian or trying to overcome an issue at work or trying to deal with your own personal concerns and problems. How are you going to have the victory? You know, a couple nights ago, my family went to the movie War Room. And if you haven't seen it, I commend it to you. I know that we can sometimes, some, so many times go to these movies and come away and the Christians are talking about, the critics are saying, oh, well, it's a bit cheesy that way or a bit this way. And I just want to clarify my opinion. I think it's awesome. I just think it's an incredible message. And I think that if you can go to that movie and come out of it and just, just think critical things about the producer or the actors or whatever, then you're missing the whole point. God anointed that movie to raise up a bunch of prayers in this world. God anointed that movie to remind us of our calling, that the way that we fight for our loved ones who are unsaved, the way that we overcome the issues that are battling against our souls is not in a flesh and blood way. When we put our full hope and trust in God, the way we see David do it in this narrative. And when we get on our knees before the Lord and lay before him, say, God, you do this. I can't change this person's heart. I can't even change my own heart. God, you do this. We see God's power at work. And you know what the world around us needs to see? The world around us does not need to see what an organized group of committed people can do in their own strength. The world around us needs to see what an organized people committed to the Lordship of Jesus Christ can do in His strength and in His power. That's what the world needs to see. They've seen enough of what the church does. They've seen enough how, of how we can mess things up too. And I wonder how many people are not even interested in attending church because of it. Would we uh, call the worship team now and, and let's conclude our service with uh, taking a look at how it is that God wants us to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. Maybe this moment in song will give us an opportunity to take inventory of our own hearts. And if God leads you to do so, may he bless you in it. Amen.